The title of my message this morning is, uh, I feel like that this is uh, something that the Lord wants to drop on us going into a new year here. And the title of the message is, The Disturbing Jesus. What do I mean by that? Have you, have you read the Gospels lately? Do you recognize how disturbing Jesus was in almost every context? He comes back from the wilderness, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he preaches a message that makes people so angry that they're ready to kill him. And they go out to the brow of the hill to throw him over and kill him. That's a, that's a wonderful first message. Why, why did Jesus do that? John chapter 6, Jesus goes into the synagogue. And he's a good Jew. He knows the scripture backwards and forwards. Every Jew in that day, and probably today as well, but certainly in that day, every Jew knew Leviticus 17, that you don't drink blood, you don't eat meat that has blood in it. That's, if you do that, anybody remember what the penalty for that is? No, the penalty is you're cut off from your people. And that's kind of an interesting phrase. So I, I get off on little rabbit trails sometimes, but it's an interesting phrase. What does that mean to be cut off from your people? Scholars disagree about what that means. It doesn't necessarily just mean that they're executed on the spot because that really isn't what follows so it can be one of three things. It could be execution. It could be excommunication from the community. Or what I think is the more likely answer is because a lot of the sins that are under the category of you're cut off from your people are sins that you could easily do in secret where no one would know. And in several of those instances, the Lord says himself, I will cut them off. So this is like a sentence of God's got your number you decide to do this in secret, he's going to find you out and he's going to come back and visit this on you. That's, that's terrifying. Jesus knew there was this mindset among Jews, you don't eat blood. So he goes into the synagogue in John chapter 6. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What do you think the response would be to that? Exactly what it was. They all left and walked out, and his disciples are sitting there going, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Did, 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 he didn't just say that. John, did he say that? He, 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 he said that. Jesus, knowing the law, knowing what their reaction would be, spoke things that were incredibly disturbing to people. For the Pharisees, what did he do? He intentionally, on the Sabbath day, which was an idol to them, the keeping of the Sabbath, called people up, the lame, to be healed. Healed them on, on the Sabbath. He's walking through the fields with his disciples on the Sabbath day. And his disciples are picking grain, which is this far from violating the Sabbath law that you don't do any work on the Sabbath. And somehow the Pharisees have a spy following him and they're out there going, Dude, what are you doing? What are you doing out here? 
They're trying to find some reason to accuse him. And Jesus allows his disciples to push it right up to the line. Over and over again, he does it. Why is Jesus so disturbing? I think the answer is that when hearts are stuck, it takes a jolt to dislodge them. And so Jesus says, see, there's a fleshly way where you just want the shock value of saying things. You, you know, that, that's of the flesh. Jesus doesn't operate that way. But he's going after stuck hearts with his disturbing messages and his disturbing language sometimes because he wants people's hearts to be free and to be released. And, and I think if you're honest with yourself... And I mean, I've been pondering this as the new year goes. I feel like there's, I know there's places through my walk with the Lord of 45 years now, there's lots of times where my heart has been stuck. And Jesus had to use a jolt to get me to wake up and to get my heart unstuck so that I could keep moving and his purposes in my life could keep growing. We tend to want to default to our comfort zones, don't we? Come on, you guys. Are you with me this morning? We want to default to our comfort zones. But what if our comfort zones are actually a cage that keep us from the full purposes of God? I think about one of my parenting stories. Diane was making dinner. Carissa was a little baby. I don't know how old she was. Maybe she was a year old. She's in the playpen in, the, in our living room. Diane's cooking dinner, and I'm in there with Carissa, and she was just fussing. She's just not wanting to be in there. She wants to get out. She wants to run. And so I keep trying to give her toys. Here's a little elephant. Here's a little whatever. And, and okay, that toy doesn't work, so I'll give her another toy. And every toy that I give her, she'd be like, Nyah. Now, you can't imagine little Carissa doing that, right? Everything that I gave her, she's throwing out, and she's just fussing and whatever. And this was a divine moment for me. Because the Lord, the Holy Spirit, actually broke in. He spoke to my heart, and he said, you're like that. And I said, okay. And this is what he said to me. You will never be satisfied with the toys of this world because you were made for something much greater than that. I was like, amen. But I still get stuck in my comfort zone. I want to default to what is comfortable and familiar with me. And Jesus, in his mercy and in his goodness, because he knows I want everything that he has for me. He's asked me that question before, and I cried because I knew something was coming afterwards. It was going to be disruptive in my life. Do you want all that I have for you? In my business, I was languishing. And I was crying out to the Lord to release me from it. I said, God, this is not working. I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. Every day is so hard. I'm working so many hours. I'm not making any money. 
I'm just beating my head against the wall. Don't you see this is not working? And then he said that question to me. Do you want all that I have for you? I started to cry. I said, Lord, you know that I do. And he said, you'll have to embrace the cross then, won't you? That's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted you to come and say, sure, this is too hard for you. You don't need to be doing this anymore. I just want you to be happy, 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 happy. So you just go out there and, and do something that's going to make you feel... No, that's not what he said. I'm not saying there's not times that he might say that. But the issue is for Jesus. He loves us too much to let us live in the cage of our comfort zone. He wants us to live in full-blooded, passionate discipleship that is filled with life and with joy. And so he's not going to leave us in the cage. We have a nice soft pillow in there. We have plenty of toys to play with in there. But Jesus is never content for us to live in a cage of our own creation because we feel safe there, we feel comfortable there, and it's very familiar to us. So he disturbs us. Sometimes he's deeply disturbing, for sure. Matthew chapter 5. Let's have an exhortation out of four verses here. These are four really disturbing verses that I've been thinking and pondering recently. So I want to disturb you with them. And the win here this morning would be if you would hear these words as coming from Jesus and not feeling like I'm trying to lather you up with my own passion, exuberance, or whatever. Um, but hear these words as words for Jesus from you, to you for you, to help you to get released from the cage that you've made for yourself. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 3. I'm going to read four verses here, and then I'm going to go back one at a time and just make some observations and look at what he is saying here to us. So, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew records it. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount probably was not just one sermon, one message that Jesus preached one time and then never talked about it again. Many, many scholars believe that this was the essence of his teaching throughout his ministry. And we know that's probably true because if you take what Matthew collected here in one spot, this is spread out all over the Gospel of Luke. Only half of, less than half of these verses are in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and the rest of the half is spread out through the rest of his Gospel. So Jesus must have been reiterating these same themes over and over again. It just wasn't a one-time message that he preached. These were themes that he went after over and over again. When Jesus saw the crowds, verse 1, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's teaching his own disciples first, but clearly by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we realize a lot of people have gathered around listening in. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. Let me make one comment on the word blessed. Some translations say happy. The, the idea behind this is not happiness in the sense that we are happy if we have a donut, a coffee, and a movie. It, it's not that. It's that we are being blessed. Jesus is saying, this is the place of the blessing of God upon your life. This is the place where heaven meets earth. This is the place where the fullness of everything that the Father has created you for comes to fruition and begins to grow and come forth. That's what it means to be blessed, this word. It's not just that we feel happy, because clearly you'll see the things that he's saying that we have to imitate are not things that would produce temporal happiness in themselves. This is a place where God's grace abounds in our hearts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle, or really better word is meek or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, if you'll allow me just a few minutes to unpack that, what these verses might be saying to us, um, and hopefully they'll have an impact upon our heart. Jesus is saying the way to the kingdom, which is God's rule and reign, everything that he desires to do in our lives is not really based on the external things. It's based almost solely upon our heart posture and our heart attitudes, and so that's what he's going after here. He's dealing with heart attitudes in the Beatitudes, not external performances. So we have this thing where we want to, tell, we want to ask people, just tell me the five points I need to do, and I'll do it. I'll be good to go. No, it's not that. You can do the five points, but if the heart isn't right and isn't rightly aligned and isn't rightly connected and isn't rightly postured to the Lord, the five points won't do any good. They'll just make you think that you're doing good, and the end of that road is to become a Pharisee. Where when Jesus tried to dislodge their hearts with a jolt, they hardened even more against him to the point where they were plotting. Can, can, can you imagine the hardness of heart? When a man who's been lame his whole life, maimed, gets healed in the synagogue, and they're angry, they're plotting how they're going to kill Jesus because he did that in his life. Can you imagine the hardness of heart that when Lazarus has been dead for three days, he's in the tomb, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out wrapped in clothes, and he stinks, and it's amazing this guy was dead for three days, and he's alive now because Jesus spoke a word. He said, loose him, unwrap him, and let him go. And the Pharisees go to themselves and go, dang, now we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. That, that's real hardness of heart. Jesus tries to dislodge the hearts. And even in his own people, I can tell you, I can tell you story after story in my own heart where my heart was stuck. I think there's people in this room where our hearts are stuck. The Lord wants to dislodge the stuck places in our heart so that we can go on into the fullness that we had. He wants you to abandon the cage. Comfort zones are comfortable, 
but they don't produce the kingdom. There's attitudes in here that we have to embrace, and they're not easy. They're disturbing. What Jesus says here is disturbing. So the first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the way that you possess the kingdom. Who wants to possess the kingdom? Who wants to see the kingdom come in power and in reality in your life and in our midst and in this world? This is the way. This is the first step. This is the first thing he says. If you want to enter into that realm and live in that way, you have to be poor in spirit. What does that mean? To be poor in spirit. You have to understand in the economy of Palestine, there was like four slices of different groups. And we kind of parse it in, in our culture that way as well. There's, there's their wealthy. Okay, in Palestine probably about 5% were wealthy. Then there was the middle class. The middle class were people who were maybe had their own business. Maybe they owned their own home. Modestly lived. That's the middle class. Another 10%. Then you've got 85% that would come under the category of poor. Okay, there's two kinds of poor. There's the poor that make enough money to eat and to provide what they need, but they don't live in their own place. They might live with a family member. There might be 18 of them in a the house. But, but they, they can survive. And then you have the poor who are completely destitute. They have nothing. They're beggars. In the Greek language, there are two words for poor, and they represent the two realities that I just spoke of. One means you're, you're getting by, but you don't have anything extra. You don't have a vacation fund. You're getting by. The other Greek word means you're completely in abject poverty, and that's the word that Jesus uses here. Blessed are the beggars in spirit. abject poverty, have absolutely nothing. What does that mean? That means there's the realization, the beginning point of the kingdom of God working in our lives is that we realize that in our own selves and in our own ability, we don't have any resource at all. We're bankrupt. We have nothing. That's the starting point. That is disturbing. That is a disturbing attitude. Jesus, I have absolutely nothing. No, I know what to do. I know the six points. I know the five points. I know the scripture. The reality is, I want you to notice too, in all of these passages, there's present tense continuum in the, in the Greek, okay? Not trying to be technical, but the point is this. He's saying, this is not a one-time entry. Okay, I know when I came to Jesus the first time, I realized I was bankrupt, and now that he's coming in my life, now I'm not bankrupt anymore. No, you are. As far as your own resource, our dependency has to consistently reach out to Jesus, saying, I need you every moment, every second. We need his resource in our lives to become what he wants us to be. We don't have it all together, right? We don't know. We don't have the wisdom that we need. We don't have the grace that we need. If you've parented much, you know this is true. We raised seven children. We were bankrupt the whole time. So many times, sitting there talking to each other on the bed, what do we do with this? 
Jesus, help! He loves that. And by his grace, even though both of us came from either her family was a complete train wreck, horrible, broken family, bitter divorce, mother not there, terrible. My family, my parents stayed together, but they weren't Christians, they weren't godly. There wasn't much heart or affection there. We didn't know how to do it. We didn't know what we were doing. We listened to James Dobson as much as we could. Tell us what to do, dude. Please tell us what to do. How do we do this? I told my wife over and over again, I don't know how to do this. I can't be a dad. Like, how do you raise children to love Jesus? Like, I didn't know how to do it. And to our good, the disturbing Jesus said, actually, I want you to have seven children. Seriously? We don't even know what we're doing. We have no model, no mentor. Yeah, we got books, but how do you do it? I would go to the Promise Keepers meetings and come back and go, I'd be more discouraged than when I went because they're telling me all these things that all these guys do, and they're awesome. They're having devotions with their kids twice a day, 30 minutes, and I'm like, I, don't, I can't do any of it. I told my wife one time I came home, she said, baby, did you learn anything good for our family? I said, no, I can't do any of it. I can't do any of the eight points. Like, I'm a total fail. That's real. She'll tell you that's true. And the Lord, in his disturbing way, put us in a position that was very, very far out of our comfort zone. My business was to fail. Like, how in the world am I going to support these kids? This is insane. And the Lord's like, no, this is what I said to do. No, this is disturbing. But one thing that grew inside of us, this is real. We were poor in spirit. Oh, God. If you don't help us and come through, these kids will grow up to be a total train wreck themselves because we don't know how to do it. I can testify to the grace and to the glory of God that he came through. He came through. He gave wisdom. He gave provision. He gave everything that we needed. But the posture, super uncomfortable to be in the place of feeling like you don't know what you're doing. But for me, it's easy to say that because that has been my life story, honestly. Poor in spirit. You recognize that you don't have the resource, the wisdom, the grace, the understanding, the patience. A lot of stories come to my mind of my total fails in parenting. Here's the thing. Jesus is like, stay in the place of dependency on me. Recognizing that I'm your resource. That's the safe place. It's not comfortable. But it's the safe place, and his provision comes. Why? Because when you're poor in spirit and you recognize that you are a beggar needing God's grace every second, his grace comes through. We learn, don't we, in America to be self-sufficient, and we despise people that are dependent. Maybe that's too strong of a word. 
but there is definitely power. In the kingdom of heaven, the right heart posture is, ah, without your grace and your wisdom, moment by moment, I am a train wreck. Come and help me. And you know what? Jesus loves that posture. He goes, oh, praise God, you got out of your cage. What are you doing out of your cage? Oh, this is so good. You're out of your cage. You even left your pillow and your blanket. Blessed. Kenneth Reese translates it spiritually prosperous are those who are bankrupt in spirit. This is disturbing language of Jesus. These are the hard postures of real disciples who are going to be full-blooded disciples and most effective. I know we don't like this because we're all about success and victory and image in America, and it's opposite of the kingdom. It's not those who are the most independent that are most successful in the kingdom. That's the Pharisees who have got it all together. Jesus said, you've got a great image there. You look like a whitewashed tombstone. But inside... Full of dead man's bones. I always struggle with the whole competence thing, like with with parent with everything. Like I'm not, I'm not competent to do this. And the Lord says, exactly, you're not. The, and I found great comfort in knowing that Paul, the apostle, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, said the same thing and learned the same thing. Second Corinthians chapter three. If you want to read it, there verses five and six. So powerful. He said, we don't count ourselves to be competent or sufficient to do anything. Come on. This is Paul, the apostle. But our sufficiency and our competency is from God. This is actually a safe place. If you're at this moment feeling incompetent, insufficient, you're in a good place. If you turn your heart to the Lord. Because his promise is that the kingdom belongs to hearts like yours. The dependent heart he loves. The heart that doesn't have its own resource. The heart that doesn't have it all figured out. The heart that's not got it all together is the heart that Jesus comes and brings the community to. Poor in spirit. Utterly helpless. This is just not the American way, is it? All right, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This, this word is the word that is used for mourning for the dead. How is it that you're blessed... If you mourn, like you've lost your dearest friend, your dearest loved one. The first funeral I ever went to, I was 11 years old. My best friend was Michael Anderson, and his oldest brother, Stephen, was 21 years old. He was going to North Carolina State University on his motorcycle, and a semi-truck didn't see him and ran over him and killed him. He was the oldest child in that family. That's the first funeral I went to to be with my friend. And I sat there, and the whole time, that entire 
funeral service, his mother wailed. She wailed. She didn't just cry. She wailed. And it marked my soul. I was like, oh my goodness, I don't ever want to go to a funeral again. That was so disturbing. It really marked me. I went out of there. Jesus said, blessed are you who mourn. Can you be comforted? What is he talking about? Mourning in what way? I think there's lots of different things we could put in that category. One of the things is mourning for our own disobedience, for sin in our lives that we've allowed to stay there and we've just managed like a little house pet carried around with us on a leash porn is like that but in the kingdom we're not okay with that there's not listen this is not condemnation at all. I'm just saying, what is Jesus saying here? We need to have a heart that goes, it's not okay if there's areas in my life that are disobedient and displeasing to you. I'm not okay with that. I'm going to grieve that. And what did Jesus say to do? If your eye causes you to stumble, what? He didn't say put a patch over it. He said put your two fingers behind your eyeball and rip it out of your head. Why? Jesus, that's radical. Because it's better for you to enter into life with one eye than to be cast into hell with two. If your hand offends you, don't put a glove on it. out a hatchet and cut it off your body. These are the disturbing words of Jesus who loved us enough to give his life for us. So we mourn sin that's attached to our life that we're not free from. I'm not talking about living in false condemnation or guilt. Hear my heart. And I know there's people that have hypersensitive consciences because I, I raised a few of them. <laughs> but they'll take anything going across the room and stab themselves with it. I'm not saying that. But listen, let's get real. What is Jesus saying? Let's, let's have the attitude toward sin that Jesus wants us to have. This is a big issue for him. This is not a small thing. I know we excuse things and we go, nobody's perfect. I'm not saying that. That's what Jesus said. We should take that seriously. What else do we mourn in our lives? For me personally, I mourn sometimes when I read the scripture and I go, that's not real in my life. That's not real in my life. That's not active in my life. I, I mourn that. You, do, you, do you know the biggest reason 
while we don't have more of the fullness and the outflow of the Holy Spirit in our life, you know what the biggest reason is? It's because we're okay without it. That's the biggest reason. And so mourning is the heart posture that responds to God and saying, no, I'm not okay with that. That grieves me. It grieves me that there's things that cling to my life that dishonor and displease you. That's not okay with me. It grieves me that there's promises that you've given me in your word and they're not reality in my life. It's just words. It's just an image. And it's not real. And that grieves me. And I think we should grieve over those things. Blessed are those who mourn. Because they will be comforted. And they will be delivered. Grace comes to the heart that doesn't settle in with its sin and go, Come along, little puppy. We, we want Jesus to come in his fullness in our body, do we not? Do, do we want him? Okay. Then he doesn't... What fellowship does God have with darkness, light with darkness, the temple of God with idols, right? This is what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He, he doesn't have fellowship with those things. And so let's... Perfection is not an option. I'm not saying perfection is the option, but direction should always be. The heart direction should always be reaching out and not being okay with things that Jesus is not okay with. And so for me, I get disturbed when I read scripture, when I look at lots of verses that we quote and we glibly throw out there. God is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. And I'm like, Lord, where? Is that really real? Jesus stood up on the feast, the last day of the feast, and he cried out with a loud voice, the disturbing Jesus. Whoever believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow floods of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, who wasn't yet given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified, John 7, 37 to 39. So, is that real? Would I look at my life and go, yes, out of my life, floods of living water are gushing out of my belly. Is that real? And I'm like, the question is then, am I okay with it if it's not real? Because, oh yeah, we, we talk about it. This is what Paul said. The kingdom of God is not in word. It's in what? It's in power. It's in reality. And so, am I saying that every day that I walk around in a depressed state of... No, but my heart is always reaching, saying, Jesus, I mourn this. This is not okay that there's so many miscarriages that are happening in our body. My oldest daughter just miscarried a 12-year-old baby girl. And there's been multiple other ones. That's not okay with me. God, we need you to come in and heal all the people that have been sick. Yeah, I mean, we can lay hands, and I, I believe in doing that. But I'm like, God, come. 
Where are you? What's wrong with me? In my heart, I'm not okay with this. I grieve it. I mourn it. Disturbing. Blessed, spiritually prosperous are those who mourn. Verse 5. Oh, I'll just give you one example. Going back to that mourn, right? Great things in my mind. Smith Wigglesworth. Anybody know Smith Wigglesworth? God used him powerful in the he- in healing ministry in England and in the U.S. around the world. He died in 1947. But he had amazing miracles. People raised from the dead. All kinds of things. We, we look at Wigglesworth and he's kind of an idol in some circles. He had a terrible anger problem. He would get angry with his wife. He locked her out of the house one time. She wouldn't cook dinner for him. He was in a, his heart wasn't in a good place. She, he said, if you go out to church tonight, you aren't coming back in the house. I'm locking you out. So she went. He locked her out. She came home, slept on the porch outside. And in the morning, when he opened up the door, she got up and said, Good morning, darling. What would you like for breakfast? The Lord convicted his heart because his wife carried a sweet and meek and quiet spirit. And he said, you know what? I've got to get free from this anger. This is not okay. And he mourned to the place where he said, I'm going to fast until this anger issue is broken in my life. Now, he wasn't fasting going to Smoothie King three times a day. I, I, I know that's the way it is currently. I hear people say all the time, I'm fasting, but then I'm taking them to Smoothie King twice. Like, this is not fasting. You can put a steak in your shake at Smoothie King. Like, that's not fasting. Fasting, okay, maybe I'm old school, but fasting is you drink water. Not that you drink smoothies all day. What the... Is that, is that an old full, old fogey thing, old school? Like, this is like, this doesn't even make sense, people. Pretty soon it's going to be fasting because I'm leaving out one thing of my diet. That's not fasting. So Wigglesworth fasted just water for an extended period of time, and when he came back, that thing was broken off of his life, and he never, he never had it again. That's mourning. This, it's the heart that says, this is not okay. I'm not going to coexist with what Jesus is not happy with. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. New American Standard says gentle. I don't think that's the best translation. The idea is kind of similar to humility. But the meek person, they're going to inherit the earth. What is the contrast there? This doesn't make sense to the natural mind. Just like the mourning person being comforted doesn't make sense. Just like the person who's in abject poverty, having the whole kingdom given to them doesn't make sense. But these are hard attitudes that are looking to the Lord. So blessed are the meek. The meek in scripture are those who don't push their own way. They're not trying to get their own agenda. They're not forcing things to happen. They're trusting in the Lord and their heart knows that he is their source and they're not going to make it happen themselves. They're going to trust in him for the results. That's what the meek are. In Numbers chapter 12, the Bible says, 
Some people think, well, huh, sure, Moses wrote the book. He said Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> Hello? <clears throat> um, what, what, what was Moses' meekness? What did it look like? He wasn't self-sufficient. When he was accused by the people and they came against him, what did he do over and over again? You know what did he do? He fell down on his face in the most vulnerable position where they could come up and stab him in the back, presumably. He fell down on his face and just cried out to God. Lord, these are your people. I'm just trying to obey you. He wasn't pushing his own agenda, not going to make it happen. He didn't have the five-year plan, the ten-year plan. I'm not saying it's wrong here in a business, but he was depending on God. Blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. And then the last one, verse 6, and I'll close with this. Lord willing. Blessed are those, this is powerful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. All right, let's talk about these words real quickly here. This is powerfully important. These are kingdom people who the kingdom is coming in their life. These are the heart attitudes that Jesus wants us to have. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. These words, hunger and thirst, I doubt that any of us in this room have hungered or thirsted very much, if at all, in our lives. Because we're Americans. But when they're talking about hunger and thirst, they're talking about being on the verge of starvation. They're talking about if they don't get a drink in the next hour, they're going to die of dehydration on the desert. This is not some little gentle, this is not a snack kind of hunger. This is a hunger that says, God, I've got to eat. I've got to have more. I've got to have all that you have for me. There's a cry. I call it the God cry. There's a hunger that cries out. What are you, what are you and I supposed to hunger for in this passage? Righteousness, right? Not for an experience. There's lots of hunger and thirst for an experience where we want God to entertain us with an angel or with a Look, I'm not against those things, but there is something unhealthy about what we're craving. What he says in the kingdom, what we crave is we crave righteousness. What does that mean? That every part of my life is in right alignment with you, God. That's what I'm craving. I don't want any part of me, big or small, to be out of alignment with you. I'm craving righteousness. That's what I must have. I hunger and thirst. And the language here is really powerful. I know I'm a little nerdy with language, but the Greek language here, there's, there's two ways to say hunger and thirst in, in the Greek language. One of them is you want a bite of something, and the other one is you want the whole thing, and this is that you want the whole thing. This is a hunger that is ravenous. I've got to have every part of my life rightly aligned to you. There's something powerful in the kingdom about hunger for God that causes God to come and bring his kingdom in powerful ways. One of my heroes in revival history, with all of his flaws, is William Seymour, who was God used in the providence of God to be the leader of the Azusa Street Revival where the Pentecostal Revival was poured out across the whole world. Millions and millions of people were impacted. Seymour's story is super powerful and it motivates me all the time. Both of his parents were slaves in Louisiana. He was raised after the shadow of slavery. His parents were freed with the emancipation 
Proclamation 1865, but there was still a lot of blatant open racism in the country. Seymour, when he got to be a young man, 20 years old, got smallpox, and it blinded him in his eye. He had one blind eye. If you see pictures of him, you can see that one of his eyes is just glazed over. It looks like it's black. He was blind his whole adult life in that eye. He was so hungry for God. He knew that there was more. He wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He preached Acts chapter 2 even though he wasn't filled himself. He, he saw it in the scripture. He heard about a guy named Charles Parham who had a Bible college in Texas. And he went down there because he heard Parham was talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and he was so desperately hungry. He was working a full-time job as a server. He says in his own diary that he was praying for six hours a day, crying out to God. He was working full-time. And then he went down there and said to Parham, can I, can I come into your school? I want to I learn about the Holy Spirit. And when he went down there to the school, he came to the class the first day and Parham said to him, you know what? It's against Texas law to have black people in the same classroom with whites. You're just, you can't come in. What, what, what do you have against you? What, what, what obstacles do you have? So Seymour didn't sit down and throw a fit and go, you're all a bunch of racists. No, he said, would it be okay if I sit outside the door on the floor and listen? Because I'm hungry and I'm not going to let any of this keep me from God. I'm not going to make any excuse for offense of what somebody said or did or all that. I don't care. I just want God. That hunger was so powerful. So Seymour sat outside those classes day after day, listened in through the door, became more and more convinced. He finally ended up out in Los Angeles. There's a church there through connections that he made that called him out there to, to be the pastor. The first sermon that he preached, he preached out of Acts chapter 2 about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And they all got angry with him and they padlocked the door to the place where he was staying into the church and he was gone, kicked out. First sermon. You, you can't stop real hunger. I want to say some things about real This kind of hunger, it doesn't, it doesn't go away when there's discouragement. It's like a fire and it keeps burning. It drives you to the Lord and to his purposes for you. And so Seymour, somebody offered their home for him to teach on the porch. Within the first month, so many people gathered on that porch that it collapsed and fell down off the side of the house. That's really true. So then they got another obstacle. Then they're meeting wherever they can, and he's preaching, and he's still not filled with the Holy Spirit himself, but he sees it in the Bible. His hunger's driving him. The Lord said to him, he said in his diary, the Lord said to me, there's more to be had in my spirit, but it's going to come by more prayer and fasting. He said, so I upped my hours to eight a day. Huh? Let's go down to Tropical Smoothie. <laughs> working full time, working as a server, praying for eight hours a day, seeking after God. John G. Lake, who was no slouch himself, had a, one of the most powerful healing ministries since the apostles, said of Lake, uh, of William Seymour, he went to Azusa Street, Lake did, 
and he met Seymour this. He said, I have never seen a man more hungry for God than him. And that hunger was so great in him that when the power of God fell on him, it glorified him. That's Lake's words. Like he was another man. If you read the stories of what happened at Azusa Street, this dude is uneducated. His theology is not good. I'll be honest with you. His theology wasn't awesome at all. I'm not saying it was errant about Jesus, but his theology wasn't good. You can read his sermons. I've got them all. It's not good theology. But his heart was crying out, God, I've got to have you. This is not okay living like this. You said in your word there was going to be floods of living water pouring out of my gut. Now, where are those? Why am I okay with just playing, dancing around, and we don't see the reality of everything that you provided? That's not okay. And his hunger became like a torch that ignited hundreds and thousands of people. Missionaries were sent all over the world from Azusa Street. And the fire of Pentecost spread across the world. Millions of people. That's a real thing. God used the hunger in one man's heart to ignite a worldwide revival that's still going on. That's the truth. us just a few questions here as we close. How hungry are we? For a bite? Are we good having a Jesus snack once a week? Let's go to go to church and get a Jesus snack. Oh, I know that's not a great thing. Let's have fun laughing. And what are we hungry for? Are we hungry for God to be preeminent and that everything in our life is rightly aligned to him and everything in his community is rightly aligned with him, that he is being truly honored and glorified in the way that he deserves? Or do we want God to come and entertain us? What, what are we truly hungry for? This is always the question. How can God fill what is already filled with all of the stuff that we fill our things with? That's why we're only hungry sometimes for a Jesus snack. There's not a beat down, but folks, do we, do we want the reality of what Jesus has for us in our season? Then we have to take honest stock of our own heart and soul. What am I actually full of? What is it that actually excites me and sets me ablaze inside? What are the things that I'm pursuing day after day that are filling my life and my attention? Like, those are honest and good questions that we should ask. I'm not telling you to quit your job or anything like that. I'm just saying, what all are we filling ourselves with? What is it that's keeping the rivers of living water from flowing out? 
I read the book of Acts just like you do. And I see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. And I see the oneness of believers. They were of one heart and one soul. And I see that mighty signs and wonders were wrought. And I see that multitudes of people, men and women, were gathered to the church because the Lord was adding them. And then I see in chapter 4 where they're filled again. And then I see the same pattern repeated again where not only were they one mind and one heart and one soul. Nobody counted anything that they owned as being their own, but they released everything and they said, God, this is not what we're living for. We're living for you and for your kingdom. So we gladly release anything else that we're holding on to that you would have your way, that you would fill us, that you would be the heart hunger that we actually have is after you, not for you to fix our stuff, but for you to be glorified supremely and for you to show yourself mighty in this generation. What are we okay with? That's the question. If we're okay with God showing up on a certain level, then that's where we're going to stay. If we're not okay with that, then we should raise our gaze, raise our gauge, and let our heart really okay to cry out to God he hears that heart can I just ask you this morning to let Jesus disturb you can I ask you to let Jesus disturb you and to shake your cage of the comfort zone that you've built for yourself and for you to actually have an honest conversation in the mirror or on your knees with the Lord and say God Am I giving you what you really desire? Or am I distracted and am I content in the cage with the pillow called my comfort zone and my familiarity? Would you pray with me? you would stir in our hearts in deeper ways. Jesus, we invite you to come and disturb us. Would you make us uncomfortable in our comfort zone? Would you raise our gaze above just enjoying our life, being happy, into being kingdom people, that are all about you and your purposes coming in our lives. Lord, I pray that in this, even in this coming year, that you would give us a greater spirit of honesty in the way that we deal with you and that there would be a cry, the God cry would actually rise up in hearts, in all of our hearts in this community that we would not be satisfied with the old status quo, even if it's a little bit different or more flavorful status quo, Lord, that we would never be satisfied with that, but that we would always be crying out, that we would recognize our deep need and dependency for you, that you would have greater influence and exert greater 
control in our lives. That you would teach us and help us by your grace to abandon things that are worthless and to reach out for the things that are going to last forever. something specific that you would write that down and not forget it that you would own that and that you would even share that with somebody else to commit yourself to it the Lord just wants us to respond he wants us to respond to him Holy Spirit would you come would you come and search us we want to be the people you shed your blood for who are all in holding back nothing releasing everything to you gladly would you work in our hearts Lord we invite you to disturb us and to shake us out of our comfort zone 